You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me is Paul Doroshenko. Hello, how are you doing? I'm okay. I don't know what to call you ever anymore now. My co-host. Sure, that's fine. Co-hostess with the mostest. Happy with that. <laughs> Let's get right into it. Yes, well, we're getting right into it by putting you to the side. Go, go away for a bit, Paul, because we have a new segment... It's going to be once a month with Eric McGracken from the McIsaac Law Group, um, who is going to talk to us about the BC Injury Law Update. So everybody, welcome back to the podcast, Eric McGracken. Thank you to Eric McGracken for joining us again on the Driving Law Podcast to discuss three recent cases uh, involving ICBC that have caught his attention in the BC Injury Law blog. Eric, welcome. Well, Kyla, thanks for having me on again. So, um, you wrote uh, about a very interesting case. It actually surprised me because I don't practice in this area about ICBC changing its lawyer at the very last minute and then asking for um, all sorts of accommodation from the court because it had changed its lawyer. Why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so so believe it or not, that's not a real unusual trend in, in the personal injury world or at least in the ICBC world where... Uh, there's a lot of litigation, high volume of litigation, and the lawyers ICBC appoints to defend claims from the get-go oftentimes aren't their trial lawyers when the cases go uh, go the distance. And statistically, I forget the number, but it's something like 99 point something percent of cases do settle out of court. So the vast majority of litigation will never end up before a judge and ICBC is the large insurer involved in all these cases knows it so oftentimes you start a lawsuit and ICBC will be it in-house counsel or even private counsel retain them and they'll do uh, you know they'll babysit the file I guess is, is one way of putting it which is they'll file their defense exchange documents maybe get through the discovery but when it becomes clear that it's one of the few cases that are going to trial, they often, not always, but they'll often shuttle in different counsel uh, at the last moment. And there's, um, you know, as you could imagine, a different lawyer looking at the case through a different lens probably wants things done to their liking as opposed to how the other lawyer worked it up. Whether, whether the other lawyer did a good job or not, everybody has their own preferences when litigating a case and when they're the ones in the courtroom. So so you get cases like this where some new lawyer gets shuttled in at the last second and they want heaven and earth to move for the file to look the way they want. And mm-hmm. this, this was a good case of the court shutting that down. They wanted a last-minute discovery and they wanted further documents to be produced and all sorts of other things. And they asked for short leave to be granted to speak to those applications and the court said, no, it's... It's simply not an emergent circumstance when the insurance company wants to change lawyers at the last minute. And I think that's a good good precedent. It's not an earth-shattering precedent, but it's good for the courts to draw the line saying, look, uh, we're not going to change the rules of uh, fair notice for applications just because one party is left scrambling based on, um, you know, a sort of a corporate strategy 
of, of handling a high volume of files. Now, what I understand from reading your um, your blog is that this wasn't a case where the new lawyer came in and, and suggested that the original lawyer had been negligent in not requesting certain information or not following up on certain documentation or discoveries. Is that, would that make a difference? Yeah, well, it might. Um, you know, there's always, there's always peculiar circumstances where we're bending the rules and using judicial discretion is warranted. But yeah, here it was just, hey, I'm, you know, I'm the new guy on the case and this is what I'd like to see happen. And uh, please grant me short leave. And, and the court said, look, it, it's entirely unfair to the plaintiff and plaintiff's counsel stuck dealing with these last-minute applications that could have been brought earlier on um, if, if the court was asked to address these things earlier on. And in the days and weeks leading up to trial, that's where the lawyer's focus should be, not on speaking to serial chambers applications asking for relief that might not even be granted in the first place. So I think it was a good use of judicial discretion in simply saying no. But it does highlight that larger trend of, of ICBC changing counsel at the last, you know, you know, last minute sort of exaggerating, but you know, say a week or a month or maybe even two months before trial when people have their cases largely ready to go and then they try to change the landscape of what evidence needs to be produced and what matters might be at issue. Now I have to ask because, you know, we've heard a lot of blaming lawyers for the costs at ICBC. Is this tactic that's used by ICBC and their switching lawyers something that increases the cost of litigation? Well, I would think so because you have you have a new lawyer that the very first thing they have to do is get up to speed on the file, and there's no other way to do that but to invest time, and presumably those lawyers are billing for that time. So you're mm -hmm. paying somebody to learn what somebody else already knows, uh, presumably at a higher hourly rate as well. So, yeah, I can't imagine that's keeping the cost of litigation down. And does having a precedent like this make it open for people to argue that they should get special costs if ICBC tries these types of tactics in the future? Yeah, you know, I don't know that. Special costs are, are so seldom awarded. I don't know that this kind of a, this kind of a case on its own will, will lead to more awards of special costs. But, you know, it's at least some good ammunition for shutting down the various last-minute requests that new counsel like to bring mm -hmm. when they're brought on board, when when you you know really should be putting your efforts into trial preparation as opposed to determining whether a further discovery is warranted or more documents need to be produced at the last minute, which changes you know the picture that the court might be seeing in a few weeks. So I think you know like I, you know you know it's just a welcome it's a welcome use of judicial discretion there. Now, speaking of uh, the cost of litigation, we've also heard a lot of blame being put on people for retaining, you know, numerous experts. And you wrote about a case involving uh, some pretty bad expert evidence. Do you want to tell us more about that? Yeah, and, and you know what, Kyla, I don't even have to get into any specific case. I've probably written, oh, I don't know, a hundred about 100 cases of courts scrutinizing uh, expert witnesses. So one of, one of my favorite blogging pastimes is to find cases where courts criticize and outright reject expert witnesses for giving poor opinions to court. And the main category, you know, the courts will call it advocacy in the guise of opinion. So it's an expert witness decides to, hey, 
I've told the court I'm going to fill my duty as an impartial expert, but instead I take the stand or I put pen to paper and write a report, and I'm writing an advocacy-based argument on behalf of the party that hired me. And that doesn't do anybody any favors. It's a terrible practice because, A, it, it inserts an opinion that really is of no merit to the litigation. It creates a false uh expectation of the parties where the defendant might think they have a valid defense where they really don't, and the plaintiff is being exposed to risk that they should never fear in the first place because it's an expert failing to discharge their duty. But my pet peeve of this subject, and I don't have to blame ICBC or blame anybody uh, in terms of the trend, it's the fact that expert witnesses have immunity when it comes to negligence. So an expert witness, yeah, you could be hired as a doctor and you could bill five or ten thousand dollars or an engineer or whatever you know, whatever the area of expertise is, but you could come in and bill five or ten thousand dollars for your expertise to write a report. You could give an outright negligent opinion in writing. You could come to court and try to justify that negligent opinion with sworn testimony, and nobody has any recourse against you. You have expert witness immunity that the courts in British Columbia, and I believe across Canada, give. They say you just can't sue that expert because we don't want witnesses being sued for the testimony they give. So the in-courtroom testimony enjoys immunity, and the report is part and parcel of that ultimate courtroom testimony. And so the only repercussion are market forces. The market forces are, okay, if you're an expert that's getting beat up by the court, maybe people will stop hiring you. And negative judicial comments, I suppose, need to be echoed to make any of that happen. If experts are routinely being, you know, having their opinions dismissed by the judiciary, hopefully parties will stop hiring them. And so when courts are vocal and direct in their criticism of experts. Everybody benefits from that. The courts need to let everybody know who they think is providing a BS opinion and who isn't providing a BS opinion, because that that serves a greater good. It's going to let parties know which uh, professional uh, witnesses are worthwhile and that the courts respect and those that are routinely rejected. So hopefully... I'll, I'll keep doing it. I've been doing it for a decade, writing <laughs> writing these articles of advocacy in the guise of opinion. I, did, you know, I don't know that you see that all that much in the criminal law sphere, but I, I know I read the occasional story about experts being exposed for mm-hmm. uh, giving really lousy opinions to the courts, and they usually do it on a serial basis. It's usually not a one-off yeah. sort of a thing, right? It's Although usually I, I the feel MO like, of the expert. I feel like we see far more of those cases coming out of the United States. And yeah. I don't think we have enough oversight of what experts are doing here in Canada. Yeah. You know, it's such an important part of a lawyer's job, be it, be it in your area of practice or mine, to scrutinize what experts have to say because, uh, you know, when, when, when they come with their background of their academic training or their professional accomplishments, it's easy to give deference to their opinions and their views. And sometimes when you dig down, you see everything's not quite as... It's being delivered, so uh, scrutinizing experts is a very important part of this job. All right, and uh, speaking of scrutiny, (laughs) uh, you were telling me that there's a lot of scrutiny that ICBC tends to apply to people who we would traditionally understand to be innocent um, in an accident situation, and you wrote about a recent case involving a cyclist that highlights this. Yeah, and I couldn't help myself. I also gave ICBC a hard time on Twitter about this. <laughs> yeah, to, 
to their credit, I'm not going to criticize this, but they're, they often are engaged in PR campaigns and public education campaigns where they're highlighting safe driving practices. And if you're a cyclist, wear a vest and have the uh, you know headlight on your bike and all these kinds of things. If you're a driver, keep a good lookout and uh, you know winter driving conditions are lousy, so please adjust accordingly. And they message this all the time. But I love contrasting those messages, and those are welcome messages. They should be, you know, they should be voiced by by the insurer, by anybody else that cares about motor safety. But uh, you scrutinize that or compare that to what ICBC likes to do in the courtroom when mm-hmm. pedestrians are struck or when cyclists are striked. And, and I'll back up a little bit. I'll, I'll put it this way: ICBC is a monopoly insurer, meaning they they. Uh, insure almost every vehicle on the BC roads. And so when two vehicles get in a crash, more often than not, ICBC will internally decide fault quite fairly because they're on the hook to pay somebody damages based on who's negligent. And column A is somebody insured with ICBC and so is column B. So chances are they'll internally uh, decide fault reasonably fairly and objectively, you know, certainly not all the time. But when you get a cyclist struck or you get a pedestrian struck, you only have one party insured by ICBC. The, the, the pedestrian isn't, the cyclist isn't, other than uh, no-fault benefits. And so when it comes to the lawsuit, the tort claim, ICBC routinely will outright deny fault when pedestrians are struck, even if they're struck in a crosswalk, or cyclists when they're struck, even if they're struck in the designated cycling lane. And that was the recent case. It came out of Kelowna, and the cyclist was in a designated cycling lane that was going through an intersection. Now, now the quirk of the case is to the left of that cycling lane was the designated right-hand turn lane for traffic, and to the left of that was the through lane for traffic. And what ICBC argued, the cyclist was simply going through the intersection, a motorist came up from behind and turned right into that cyclist. ICBC argued the cyclist should have left their designated lane, went through the right-hand turn lane, and into the through lane for vehicles, and they were negligent for trying to stay in the cycling lane all the time on their bicycle. And so the court had no time for that argument, basically. Yeah. Give me a break. <laughs> so the law uh, also requires them to stay in the bike yeah, lane. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, like to me it wasn't a head-scratcher in terms of what the result was going to be. But it's illustrative of the fact that ICBC does, at least formally, like to blame pedestrians and cyclists for crashes and not the drivers that they insure, uh, which, which, you know, at least I could... Uh, have some fun pointing out the contrast of that compared to the public messaging that they give. Now, again, mind you, maybe there's concerns like insurance limits or other reasons why liability gets denied, but it is a pattern I see. When when you have a cyclist or a pedestrian, there's a very good chance ICPC is going to say you're fully at fault, even if you're in that marked crosswalk with the walk signal on when a motorist barrels into you. So that's, you know, that's some of the trends I see, and I, yeah, I think these three cases highlight um, some of what's been going on. Well, that's excellent. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. And if people want to read more of your award-winning blogging, congratulations, by the way. Oh, thanks, Kyla. <laughs> I think your nomination has to do with it. Every year I'm, I'm, I'm nominating you. I'm a big fan. Um, if people want to read more of your award-winning blogging, they can find it at bc-injury-law.com. It just and... rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> the dashes there. 
Uh-huh. used to be ICBCLaw.com, but believe it or not, ICBC sued me for that. What? Uh, yeah, they said, hey, you can't use our our name in your URL. People will be confused. Now, oh, I could have fought them on it because their, their position was complete nonsense, but I figured, mm-hmm. you know what, I'll take the high road and I just rebranded it as the BC Injury Law blog. So do there you, you go. I used do you to have still a, own ICBCLaw.com? You know what? We're going to do a live experiment right now. I'm on my computer. <laughs> ICBCLaw.com. It might be mine still. There it is. Yeah, so it's my... Yeah, it, it just blindly redirects you straight to BC Injury Law. So go to ICBCLaw.com if you want. Okay. Hey, you could still read my stuff. <laughs> awesome. And how can people reach you by phone if they want to call you and, and retain you for an injury case? So toll-free, BC-wide, 1-800-663-6299, or if you're in Victoria, 250-381-5353. Well, thank you, Eric, for joining us for an injury law case update. Kyla, thanks so much. My pleasure. All right, Paul, welcome back. Co-host just with the mostest. Glad to be back. (laughs) Um, All right. So we have like another red alert. Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck is happening in Calgary, yo? Well, uh, you just told me about it 15 minutes ago, so you're going to have to fill me in. Calgary police have announced that that's it. This is the end of the uh, golden road of driving without being randomly tested. Now, any time a police officer stops you, whether it's for a speeding ticket, whether it's because you, you did a California rolling stop, or whether it's at a roadblock, you will be made to provide a sample into a breathalyzer. Wow. So it's a policy decision wow. to mandatory test Everybody. So it's no longer the criminal code. It's now a policy decision based on the fact that they can mandatorily test in the criminal code. Yes. So one year and one month Mm -hmm. from the change in the law, now we have this intrusive test where every person is going to, God, think of the refusal charges they're going to have. So many refusals. Wow, Calgary lawyers, get ready. It's going to get really busy. Lots of innocent people are going to be coming into your door because they're going to be charged with refusal. And lots of innocent people are going to fail ASDs because of mouthwash or smoking or keto diets, as we heard from Jan Semenov recently, or um, other sources of alcohol. Monster Monster energy energy drinks. Yes, if you watch Can You Fail It? Yep. So that's insane. Wow. It is insane. And it's really like over the top, ridiculous and dumb and unnecessary. And it's not like impaired driving's like suddenly spiked in Calgary and everybody's like out partying and treating the roads like it's their own living room. Well, the other thing is think about accidents. Okay. When there's an accident and the police come out and they, you know, detect an odor of liquor on somebody's breath, then they have them blow. But 99% of the time... Alcohol is not a factor in those minor accidents. Well, and also, so what are they saving? What are they accomplishing? Also, what are they getting out of this? In accidents, they're not even allowed to use mandatory I know, testing, I know. which is the most absurd part. I know. You'd think that would be the logical place to put it. Every accident, everybody gets tested. Well, People I, get I behind could see, that. I could see reasons to not do that, but they're legal reasons that they you know, disregarded all sorts of good legal reasons when they came out with a mandatory test. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the point is that like, we just don't see alcohol being a factor in a huge number of accidents. And nope. when there's no symptoms or anything like that, it's almost never is there a collision. And so what is the purpose behind this? I yeah. mean, I suppose the threat, the deterrent threat. 
I guess. The deterrent threat, I guess. Oh that's my the God, only thing. I'm going to be tested. Gonna, but, you know, look, if oh, you're going to be tested be, either way. We're going to convict a bunch of innocent people of refusal mm-hmm. to deter and we're people going, from drinking. And we're going to detain a bunch of people because in Alberta, they don't have an IRP. You know, where you blow, you fail, mm-hmm. you get the IRP, you go home in a taxi or on foot or in the back of the cop car or in the tow truck. Um, you know, you don't, you don't get that. You get, you blow, you fail, you're handcuffed, you're put in the back of a police car, you're driven to a police detachment or a breathalyzer bus nearby, you're got out, you're put on the phone with a lawyer if you ask for one, then you're made to wait 15 minutes, maybe, because they don't always do the observation period, and then you blow. And then you finally get the evidence to show, hopefully, that you're not over the limit or that it was a mouth alcohol reading. And then, what, that's an hour out of your life? At least, at least. Typically it's two hours. humiliation. We've noticed now that the police are moving very slowly in investigations because there's no longer the window that they have to take the tests in that they used to have. Yeah. So the, uh, because they only have to be able to say that you were over 80 in the two hours after driving. And there's no longer an as soon as practicable requirement to the presumption. Yeah. Which there should be. There should be. But that's fine. Section nine. Uh, so this is fascinating because yeah. I just cannot imagine how many refusal cases they're going to get. And there's going to be so many innocent people who are going to be having to go through the system. And we know, um, when Alberta switched from the Intoxilizer 400 to the, uh, Alcosensor FST, that refusals went up, mm-hmm. uh, which means it's a de- device issue, right? Um, and, um, it's not an operator issue. It's a device issue. Mm -hmm. And lots of people simply cannot provide a sample. And Mm -hmm. if they're going to be testing every single person, I mean, my dad sitting in his car probably can't provide a sample. My mom probably can't provide a sample. My grandma who drinks three glasses of wine a year cannot do it. I tried to do it like with her at a Sunday dinner with our family. And she got so freaked out about blowing into it for fun when I was doing the test on her that she couldn't provide enough air. I know. Imagine if she was, well, I mean, she doesn't drive, but imagine if she did. Oh, I know, I know, I know. (laughs) It's insane. It's absolute insanity. But I also think this is really stupid on the part of the Calgary police because they're going to get sued. Well, they're not just, okay. They're going to get sued hard. They're going to get sued. I can guarantee they are going to get sued. (laughs) The problem that they've got is they probably have realized that they've been unlawfully testing people of minorities or something like that. And now they're worried about, uh, bias in policing. So they're probably trying to do it so that they can ensure that there's no bias in policing, but instead they're going to end up getting a bunch of seniors. And the other thing is, I'm sorry, this is not pursuant to the criminal code. No. Once this is pursuant, as soon as you make it a policy, as soon as you make it a policy, it is no longer a provision of the criminal code. And so does that mean that they're just ignoring the fact that reasonable suspicion exists and that if they can form a reasonable suspicion, I mean, the manual here in BC says officers should try to form a reasonable suspicion first before making a mandatory demand. Does that mean they're not even going to bother with that? Manual doesn't say that. It does. The manual says. It says that. Does it? It does. Because I think that's a, I think that's a, uh, a violation of the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I know what you're thinking and yeah. I agree. And I've argued that and I think I've succeeded on it in IRP hearings. I agree, but. Um, I mean, the point behind that in BC was that the police in BC did not want to be the ones that, uh, have the case that leads to the law being struck down. And yet the reality is that thanks to the IRP scheme, BC probably will. I don't, I don't know. You told me that a year and a half ago and I no longer, 
uh, believe that because I'm thinking it's going to happen in Ontario first. No, and let me tell you why. What has happened is Crown Council across Canada has gotten together and they've come up with an agreement for challenges to random breath testing. Anybody who's charged with impaired driving who wants to challenge the mandatory alcohol screening first must complete their trial. And Crown's position is that the trial must complete, which means that the driver has literally every other argument to go through, whether it's uh, you know, uh, disclosure issues under 320.34, whether it's functioning of the instrument, whether it's other challenges to other aspects of the legislation that arise at more opportune times, um, whether it's charter violations in the conduct of the officer's roadside, all of those things get dealt with first. And then if there's a conviction, then the court can decide the constitutional question. That's total bullshit. Of course All somebody bullshit. has to do is stand up and say, no, we don't want to do it this way. And No, in fact, there's case law that says that it should be done that way. The only way you no. can get around it is if you stand up and you say, I admit the entirety of the Crown's case, I invite the conviction, now I constitutionally challenge it. Oh. And nobody's going to do that because why wouldn't you? When the Crown takes that position, the delay is on them. If the process no, takes longer, fracturing it. They're, they're fracturing it because then, and the, the accused is better off taking that fracturing because they may end up with a Jordan argument. So you're saying that your uh, challenge in BC Supreme Court is more likely to be heard before? Before a BC Supreme Court decision, because remember, a provincial court can't strike down the law. They can only refuse to apply it in an individual case. So somebody would have to lose a trial, lose a constitutional challenge, and appeal it, or win a constitutional challenge, and that be appealed, and then the law okay, struck down. Okay, that's lovely and everything, but, and I'm sorry to complain, but we are 13 months into this. There is one, one that is not proceeding this way. It is being argued in April in Yukon. I know you've got that, but like, this seems too long. This is too long. It almost feels like we should have had some sort of constitutional reference to the Supreme Court of Canada on it or something. Well, I mean, find an AG though, who wants to say, I'd like to question the constitutional validity of a drink driving law. That's political suicide. You and I have talked about that before. I know, but basically in the end, what it means is that somebody has to have contravened the law in order to challenge the law. And if you wanted to set up a challenge, you can't. And it means that people across the country end up suffering as this thing is playing out um, when really we just need to get it before the court to ask the court the question, is this is permissible this um, or is it a charter violation that is not permissible? No, I'm, I'm with you 100%. I think that this is a, t a tactic that the Crown is doing out of fear that the law is going to be struck down. And I also think that it's dirty pool because you don't, you know, you could totally do an agreed statement of facts and you could set it up in a, in a reasonable way um, uh, that's done in court. It's just not. Um, uh, not being done that way because the Crown's taking an overly stringent position. It's unfair. Um, anyway, Calgary is going to get Cal sued. Calgary is going to have a problem there. Somebody yep. will sue them. Yeah, for sure. But, but when they sue them, they succeed. This is Alberta. Mind well, you in BC, uh, who knows? When they sue them, they can constitutionally challenge the law, just like we're doing in Halifax. True. So. Sure enough. I guarantee you an enterprising Calgary lawyer you we'll know a be, bunch of those. We'll be filing a lawsuit. I can even think of 
one that's been on this podcast and one that should be on this podcast. Soon to do it. Um, anyway, I just, uh, my, my original point is that this is not pursuant to the criminal code anymore. Yes. Uh, it's got to be a police officer who makes a lawful stop and has the device with him or her and comes to the conclusion that it's appropriate at this point to make a mandatory demand. Yes. And that last step of that is the officer's discretion. Um, and the other thing is you will probably see a lot of occasions where the stop is not really lawful uh, mm -hmm. for one reason or another, or the police cannot express it as a lawful way. And now they're going to end up going through this process mm -hmm. with people. It's going to clog the courts if they start charging people with refusal in these circumstances, because lots of people I'm afraid can't blow. And the manuals don't tell the police that some people can't blow. They always no. just say if they don't get a sample, it's, it's a Must refusal. Must be faking it. It's either, yeah, it's either a, a <laughs> clear refusal or an equivocal refusal. Even a three-year-old with one lung can do it. Yeah. Have you met a three-year-old with one lung? Because I haven't. Well, that... I want to know where they found that three-year-old <laughs> and tested them because that seems unethical. Yeah, yeah. My, my <laughs> third nephew with one lung who's three can provide a sample. Like, how many police officers have taken an ASD home to test on their... Well, and their nephew with one lung. Mm -hmm. I remember one time an officer told me something ridiculous in cross-examination in a refusal trial. And then I brought some... Yeah, I think you said this once on the yeah, podcast. I brought the, some The officer said you could, you could tie it to a rope and spin it around your head and it would take a sample. And so I brought one to court with a rope that you loaned me oh. and asked him to show me that. And he said he'd never tested it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then the judge wouldn't let me make him demonstrate that it didn't work. Yeah, I think that was probably <laughs> sufficient to humiliate him if you're going to make some sort of stupid hyperbole like that. <laughs> but I wanted to tie it to a rope. I never get yeah. a demonstration yeah, in yeah. court. Yeah, make him bring a make him bring a police one in, not mine. <laughs> okay. Smash an ASD for All the right. sake of your demonstration. Moving on, we did talk to Eric McGracken today um, about some ICBC case law updates, but I wanted to talk to you about some other ICBC-related updates, namely the creation of an ICBC Fairness Commissioner and these pre-settlement payouts. Yeah, uh, Fairness Commissioner, you know, the sure government sounds... has the government has realized that they have an optics problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it was fair all along, they wouldn't need a fairness commissioner. And I keep talking to people who appealed internally ICBC's decision on something, mm -hmm. um, including finding a fault. My neighbor had a uh, bus took his mirror off, and all the way up the line, ICBC said, "Oh no, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault." Finally, he. He appealed it to the ICBC ombudsman who mm -hmm. said, obviously, look at the video. It's the bus's fault. It drove into your lane. Mm -hmm. And it was only because he pushed it to the end yep. uh, that uh, ICBC ultimately was compelled because of the ombudsman. Um, the, so The idea of a fairness commissioner makes me think of like 1984. Like, it feels like an office that there would have been in that dystopian world. Like, oh, if you're concerned about what Big Brother's doing, you can complain to the Fairness To the Ministry of Fairness. Well, <laughs> yeah. this was my, this was my, this was my complaint about the NDP back when, under Glenn Clark, was that it felt like a, it felt like a paternalistic 1984. Actually, there's a uh, Kurt, Kurt Vonnegut Ministry of Fairness. Um, there's a short story. Uh, it'll come to me where there's a Ministry of Fairness. Um. But, it, you know, that sort of paternalistic thing uh, where we can decide what's fair for you. Yes. Um, 
Who's Harrison Bergeron? And it's an, also another attempt to take things away from the court. Mm-hmm. Give it to their own internal tribunal. But lots of times, I mean, I, look, I'm disappointed with the court. I think there's lots of times things could be resolved in a much better way. Yes. I look at lots of complaints where we have he said, she says. And what uh, about... And I keep thinking, you know, wouldn't it be better if you just had an independent person just go talk to these two people off the record in no way that can damage them? On their own, I and then come that's back called and mediation. say, and then come back and say, yeah, well, no, it's not if it's an assault. You know, you're not going to resolve it that way, and come back and say, you know, this is not appropriate to proceed, or this is appropriate to proceed. Like I just feel our justice system is a. Yeah, but not, I don't know why we're not mediating well. some criminal offenses. No, I think we should. It makes sense. No, I think we should. Um, I think we'd get a lot further if we had, you know, criminal court mediation, but you know, you heard that here first, folks. <laughs> Nobody's listening to me yeah. on that one. No. Um, what I am concerned about is these pre, these pre-settlement payouts where ICBC is like, oh, here's some no strings attached cash, go take it. And, you know, we'll pay you while you were assessing your claim. And, um, then when we determine what your claim's worth, we'll, you know, we'll pay you what's left. They do such a thing. They're doing it now. This is the new thing. This is announced at the same time as the Fair Fairness Commissioner. Gee, maybe I should get some money for my injury claim halfway. Don't do it, Paul. Why not? When has ICBC ever offering somebody money before the case is settled gone well for them? True. Yeah. Exactly. True. I mean, and if you think about it, if, if they're doing this on a claim where there's a lot of, you know, current care costs for somebody needs like a housekeeping service or whatever, um, the value of that claim is being diminished significantly at the front end while those things are being paid out by ICBC. So what's left when you get to trial? Your pain and suffering, and maybe if you still have it, future care costs. Well, I can see the perspective of ICBC on this one. I mean, it can be argued that they're mitigating the damage this way. Uh, and that the law firm doesn't have to lend you the money, which, you know, firms do from time to time. I know, um, but... To cover people during the interim. They're only doing this for self-represented individuals. Aha. Uh -huh. Aha. Uh -huh. So in the end, you've they've already paid out 35000 Um there might be another 135,000 that would be payable or might be another 100,000 that's payable or there might be another 30,000 that's payable at which point you you know your lawyer is not going to earn anything out of it you if, may have difficulty well, finding a, finding counsel to even do it yep. at which point ICBC can run roughshod and pay you 12,000 and even if you do have counsel where's the incentive for ICBC not to take it to trial it's not like they're saving tens and tens of thousands of dollars anymore. They've already paid out a substantial portion of the claim at a percentage of what it's worth. So the risk for the rest is worth the roll of the dice. Forcing more people to trial, increasing the costs of the litigation for the little guy, while ICBC just gets to laugh all the way to the bank. Well, they're clever there. It's not clever. It's awful. It is... It is damaging to our justice system. I'll get David Eby back on and grill him. I'm hoping to. Either that or get the uh, Fairness Commissioner on from the Ministry of Fairness. You can ask <laughs> him all about it. See if he thinks it's, he or she thinks it's fair. It's a, it's a guy, right? I assume it's a man. I yeah. don't know. I just saw a photograph of somebody with a like an old beige um, uh, TV tube style monitor 
from the 1990s there. And uh, uh, I think that was the person. Anyway, this does beg the question that's been going around this week. Is it time for privatization of IC insurance to end and to open up the market? I'm not supportive of it. I'm sorry. I lived in Alberta. I lived in Manitoba and I lived in BC. I've lived in two provinces with socialized car insurance and I've lived in one where it's a competitive market. It was capped, a competitive market that was capped under the NDP in Alberta uh, for the last little while. And since the cap's been removed by the conservatives, which I think is appropriate because if you're going to have a free market, have a free market. Mm-hmm. Um, the cap was removed by the conservatives and prices are, are skyrocketing and people are getting gouged. And I know lots of people who had nightmare scenarios in Alberta with their insurance company. Um, in BC, for all ICBC's problems, um, there is a lot of oversight of ICBC at the same time. Yeah, I know, but you could not, if you were Paul Doroshenko, CEO of a Acumen Insurance Corporation, and you went to your shareholders at the end of the year, and you said, well, looks like we're a billion dollars in the hole, so that's fun. You're going to be fucking fired. Not necessarily. Are you kidding? What CEO if you can explain, a... If you can explain where things went wrong and what you did and you started off this year and, you know, in, with ICBC, you've got to, they've got to apply to change the rates to the government. There's a whole process to do it. Um, no, I mean, there's, there, there, in, in insurance, there are, excuse me, unexpected expenses, uh, unexpected claims. You have a bad hailstorm somewhere. You're replacing a bunch of cars. Think of all those cars that were uh, had to be replaced around uh, trail when some acid was spilled on the road. Yeah. You know, like th- things like that cost big money. No, I get that. But I mean, that doesn't explain the billion dollar deficit. Billion dollar deficit is a bad calculation on um, on um, costs and probably a bunch of, of old things that have been sort of hidden on the books that are being brought out and finally addressed. I was leaning mentally in my mental debates on this issue towards the privatization ending and the free market opening up. Um, And then I swung my pendulum back around to let's just fix what we've got first. And if we can't fix it, then let's reassess. And what swung me back around was listening to an interview with Andrew Wilkinson. Um, that Mike Smith did on the Simi Sarah show on CKNW. And he was asked some very tough questions by Mike Smith about, you know, well, if you want to open this up to competition, what would that look like? How would you regulate it? What would you do? And he couldn't articulate it. And I am not supportive. Like, I know the NDP has no interest in opening this up. But I am not supportive if a government is going to be saying, elect us because we're going to fix this with a free market economy for insurance and then can't articulate how they would make that happen or what it would look like or how they would protect ratepayers. I just, no, no. Persuade me by showing me there's a plan that's worth executing. Their plan is just to let the insurance companies from Ontario come and dictate to them what they would do. Yeah, but that's Um, not a plan. No, I know. It's a non-plan plan. Um, I know Gordon Campbell, back when I was a volunteer for the BC Liberals, I asked him about ICBC and various people did, and he would always give the same answer. 
the entire time I'm Premier, I will tell you right now, we are not privatizing ICBC and there will be no substantive change to the way that it's run. When Christy Clark got in, of course, they were taking money from ICBC left, right and centre and setting it up to fail. Uh, and the expectation was that had she been able to form government and not been uh, forced out because of her minority position, then uh, they were going to let it fa fail and they were going to invite the Ontario insurance companies in to, to let them run the show. Uh, and that is the plan that the BC Liberals, many BC Liberals have. Uh, that's all their plan. They have no plan about how they're going to regulate it, how they would operate it, how they would transition from ICBC. They just want to let it fail and then uh, happen. Well, that's it's a non-plan. Anyway, speaking of non-plans, it's time for our ridiculous driver of the week. We didn't plan one. No, we planned one. Just, I don't think the police had a plan when they were dealing with this person. Okay. The ridiculous driver of the week. <laughs> That's the music for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week? Yeah, that's our jingle. Good. Okay. All right. I like it. Um, so uh, what was the, what happened? What, so tell me about it. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week was a man who was riding a horse who was pulled over on his horse for distracted driving. Oh my God. Was this in BC or somewhere in the no, States no, or something? somewhere in the States. Oh, okay. Yeah, but still. So cell phone, horse cell phone. So he's not driving, he's operating, he's dri uh, you're not operating a horse. The horse has a brain of their own. Okay, yeah. so you're, Your you're horse isn't going like to walk into the back of another car. Well. <laughs> like, like the horse will stop yeah. before it hits something. Yes, I, I. Like your biggest risk is you might fall off the horse. You know, a horse might be a conveyance now in Canada um, and you might be able to get an impaired operation of a horse now. Uh, thanks Jody Wilson. <laughs> thanks Jody Wilson-Raybould. Yeah, um, the... we can also thank her for mandatory testing. And while we're on the subject of Jody Wilson-Raybould, I would just like to say that I was a little bit perturbed at her getting all uppity in the House of Commons about the government doing nothing about mandatory minimum sentences. Like, bitch, that was on your mandate oh letter. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, I know. I'm sorry. You but you had almost four years to like, do it and you did nothing. Do you think that people have forgotten that it was literally your fucking that was job? Your job. Yeah. And you did not do it. In fact, you added more mandatory minimum sentences. We're not stupid. Oh, no, I think most... Most people are not paying attention. I wouldn't say that they're stupid, but they're not paying attention. Um, and, you know, you can score political points wherever you like. But yes, uh, you arguably could be impaired or uh, at or over 80 milligrams within two hours of operating your horse in mm -hmm. Canada and be convicted of an offense. Uh, but thank goodness you're allowed to use your cell phone in British Columbia while you ride your horse. Yes. So, uh, if you want a distracted riding. But that's going to be the, that's going to be the next big crisis, Kyla. It's going to be. Distracted horseback riders. Just, yeah. Yeah. It's going to, it's the end of the world. The, the sky is die. falling. The sky is falling. Everybody's going to be riding their horses while texting and. Yeah. I doubt it. I'm not concerned at all. You're not. No. But just wait until Mothers Against Drunk Driving decides to. <laughs> all right. Well, that's our podcast. Well, I've enjoyed this. Good. Well, um, if you need to reach us, you can find us anytime online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call 604-685-8889. <laughs>